Well, here we are at the first Sunday of the new year. And so this morning we're going to deviate from our normal practice of expositing a specific text. And I want to do kind of a topical message addressing some of the issues that are facing the church today. Probably because of my job and and just what I do every week, reading things. Uh, throughout the year, I've become bothered by a lot of things. And um, these things kind of build up inside of me. And so today I'm going to purge <laughs> on you a little bit. And, and also because I, I want this church to be a discerning church. Recently I've been encouraged. I've talked with some of you who have said things like, um, you know, I... I used to be involved in this, and I realized that that's not good, that's not biblical. Or, you know, I, I never noticed this before, but now I'm realizing that that contradicts the Word of God. And these things are encouraging to me, because I want this church to be aware of unbiblical doctrines and trends. I want us to be a church that has great discernment. We all need to be obeying the command of First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, Examine everything carefully and hold on to that which is good, and to abstain from every form of evil. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Examining everything carefully according to the word of God and holding on to that which is good. Biblical discernment and critical thinking and judging between right and wrong are in many circles sins of bigotry and prejudice instead of true biblical virtues. Yet we must be striving to be like the sons of Issachar. The sons of Issachar are mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. They were men who knew the times. They understood the times with knowledge of what Israel was to do. 1 Chronicles 12.32 We need to be like the sons of Issachar. We need to understand the times and know what we are to be doing. Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 15 through 17 says this, Therefore be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is what we are called to be as Christians. To be careful how we walk. To be wise in the way we walk. To make the most of our time because the days are evil. To not be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. So often, we know all about the economy. We know all about political infighting. We know who we think is going to win the Super Bowl. We know who's going to win the Academy Awards. Or at least we think we do. But do we know things from God's perspective? Or we could put it this way. Do we know things from a significant perspective? Many Christians are experts at trivia, but their theological antennae are so short. Their discernment is so weak that they are oblivious 
to the great spiritual movements happening in our world and in our culture and in our churches. Because the Bible is not being taught, doctrine is not being taught, theology is not being taught, and people are having very little discernment. They can't discern between truth and error. Oh, we may pride ourselves because we are not like the world. We may think to ourselves, oh, we're better than the world. I mean, we're up here and they're down there. But what happens is, is the world goes down a step and we follow them a step. They go down another step and we follow them another step. And we may be two steps above them, but we're still going down. And the standard is not the world. The standard is the Word of God. And no matter how low the world goes, we need to hold the line at where God holds the line, which is the Scriptures and the Word of God. I just get distraught when... Books being lauded as great spiritual medicine are being read by millions. The prayer of Jabez has just come out recently. It's been out for a while. And I tried not to read it. And everybody was reading. And finally somebody gave me a copy. And I struggled through half of it before I finally had to put it down. It was so fraught with theological error. I just, ugh. And yet I've heard many people say, oh, I like that book. What in it did you like? What is it? The book basically teaches you just repeat this prayer and God will give you what you want. That's not biblical prayer. That has nothing to do with prayer. In recent years, we've been plagued with experiencing God. I read that book and did a critique. You can get it on the website. That book is saturated with mysticism, with incipient charismatic theology. It just is off almost everywhere. And yet it has swept the globe and has given birth to study Bibles and and prayer calendars and all sorts of things. Worldly methods of doing ministry are rampant. Psychology has replaced repentance and sanctification. Psychotropic drugs are substituted for God's grace and the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit and repentance and the sufficiency of the Word of God. These things are like Trojan horses which the church is all ready to bring right into their fold as a gift from the world. But they are really from the enemy. And as believers, we are called to be aware of, to be discerning, to be critical, to be judging everything by the Word of God. We are commanded to do that. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 15, Beware of false prophets and beware of their false teaching. Jesus, speaking of His second coming in the last times that we live in, said this in Luke 21, 34 through 36. Now, let me just read this. And as I read this, I want you to think about our times. Jesus said, Luke 21, 34, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Jesus says, be on guard. And that you will not, and that the day, his second coming, will not come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep 
on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of God. As believers, we need to be aware, we need to be on guard, we need to be discerning, we need to be critical, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan. And what I want to do is address just a series of trends. This was an interesting little exercise. I kept collecting these things uh, over the months, and then I typed them all out, and I had enough for like two and a half sermons. And so then I got up this morning early and kept whittling until I, I'll get it in. I did the first service. But I want to help you see some things, things that you may be aware of already, things you may not be aware of already. I want to help give you discernment, and I want to show you the need of discernment, and that the Scriptures call us to be discerning. And it's not a sin, it's a biblical virtue to be critical and examine everything according to the Scriptures. So let's look at the first category. People are proceeding from bad to worse. Does that seem obvious? While there are many advancements in technology and medicine and many new fun gadgets, the hearts of men are growing continually worse, more wicked. As God is increasingly rejected from society... So men become more and more pagan. As this happens, government will be forced to increase. Romans 13 says that there is no authority except that which is from God. And the authorities which exist, exist by God, and that they exist for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And as Christians, as we see the world reject God, what we will also see is the need for the government to increase to try and suppress the wickedness. And so we can expect that. Though our country is supposedly a Christian nation, it is not anymore. Though our country started out as a Christian nation, it has not been immune to what the Bible says will come upon the entire world. This country, for the most part, was founded by men and women of God who were looking for religious freedom. Those who followed in the Puritan tradition, very pious, very godly, very committed to God, who wanted to come to this country to worship God in spirit and in truth and to work hard and enjoy one's labors. Our law system is based on the principles taken from Deuteronomy. Look at any of our coins. What does it say on there? In God we trust. It's amazing, isn't it, that they haven't removed that yet. The Pledge of Allegiance declares that we are one nation under God. Our national anthem, which most people seem to think only has one stanza, actually has three. The other stanzas aren't usually ever sung. The reason is, is they talk about God. Let me read one to you. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. 
Then conquer we must, for our cause is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. Our national anthem. I was speaking to one of the senior citizens who said they grew up in New York. They said that every day, when they went to class, the first thing they would do is open the Bible and read from it. They then moved to Florida where they said every day they opened the Bible and read from it. Now you can't even have the Ten Commandments on a school wall. You can't pray in school. You can't treat the Bible as the book of books. Things have gotten worse. Turn in your Bible to Luke 17. Luke 17. Here Jesus is describing what it will be like when he... Right before he returns. Luke 17, 26. Jesus said, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came upon and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating. They were drinking. They were buying. They were selling. They were planting. They were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Three things I want to point out from this. One, men will be godless carrying on as normal without the thought of God or without desire to give glory to God as the days progress. Secondly, it will be like the days of Noah where violence and wickedness reigned and the thoughts and intentions of men's heart, according to Genesis 6-5, were only evil continuously. And there was only a small remnant who trusted God and were saved because they entered the ark. It will be just like the days of Sodom where men were perverse, indulging in gross immorality and homosexuality, where only a remnant, a very small remnant, Lot and his two daughters were saved. In both Noah and Lot's time, wickedness was at a peak. In both Noah and Lot's time, godless people were carrying on as normal. They were marrying, they were giving and married, they were planting, they were building, but with no thought of God. And then, unexpected, divine judgment came down on them from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus said, it will be just the same on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Turn over to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3.
Here, Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, describes the difficult times that will come in the last days. He says this starting in verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, as I read these things, see if you can think of anything in our world today that might match up to these things. For men will be lovers of self. You ever been at the grocery store and seen Self magazine? Every time I see that magazine, I think of this verse. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. You ever seen Money Magazine? Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, they're religious, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Then he goes on to explain how there will be these sexual predators who will enter into households and captivate weak women led on by various impulses. He he explains how their progress will be evident to all, how they will be like Janus and Jambres, the two magicians who opposed Moses and the word of God and who were destroyed because of it. And then he goes on to say, well, Timothy... This is how it's going to be in the last days. But you, here's the antidote, verse 10, you follow my teaching. You follow my conduct. You follow my purpose, my faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. That is how you deal with the end times garbage that's coming upon the world. And then he gives the church a promise, which I think no TV evangelist has ever claimed. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Then he goes on to say, Timothy, listen, you know how you came to to Christ. You know that you received the wisdom from the scriptures. You know that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that you and everyone else who knows Christ can be equipped for every good work. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, preach the word. Why? Because it's the word of God, which is what changes people, saves people, and transforms them and gives them the strength to live in a world that's falling apart. The world is literally going to hell, literally, and only a remnant will be saved. Godlessness and wickedness is increasing and will continue to increase. And I don't tell you this to scare you. I tell you this because it's true. And it seems that some Christians are living in denial. I tell you this because the Bible says it will happen and you need to know the truth so you can make the most of your time now because the days now are evil and continually getting more evil. Beware and be warned, you will see wickedness increase. Secondly, 
There will be wars and rumors of wars. This is obvious. I like to read the Jerusalem Post online and the CNN online, the world version. And I'm amazed at how many countries are in conflict, at war, fighting against each other. And the Middle East is just like nitroglycerin on a hot, sunny day. Just any moment... I, I just wait for somebody to say somebody launched a nuclear weapon. I mean, it's just tense over there. All sorts of places all over the world, there's war. I mean, now we got the Afghanistan and the Pakistan and, you know, Pakistan and India and people just pairing off all over the world. And instead of being encouraged, a lot of people are scared. They're scared because they, they seem to think that this is some unforeseen thing. That some unforeseen, unexpected thing is coming upon the world. Some even seem to think that our country should be inoculated from tragedy. That because we're the home of the free and the brave, that somehow global tragedy is fine, but not in our country. Believe me. We will experience what the Bible says will come upon the entire globe and we will not escape. It will happen and there's nothing we can do to prevent it. Turn to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks in the Olivet Discourse and disciples... We're going to look at verse 4 and following. The disciples have just asked Jesus, saying, Tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know what it's going to be like so they can prepare and be aware of what's going on so they can know when the end is about to take place, when Jesus is going to come back. So look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Now, just right there, we know that people are going to try and mislead us. So the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, the first part of his answer is, See to it, it doesn't happen. A call to discernment. Verse 5, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel, the kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. You know, when a woman has labor, we don't say, my goodness, 
She's having contractions. It's like, no kidding. That's what happens after nine months. I mean, look at her. She needs to get that thing out of there. But many people are looking at the world and going, Oh my! Wars and rumors of wars! Jesus said, expect people to try and mislead you. Expect war. Expect persecution. Expect false prophets. Expect tribulation. Expect people's love to grow cold. Expect increasing apostasy. Expect men to hate one another. Expect these things, for they are the spawn and the progeny of sin. Because lawlessness is increasing, these things will come about. But also take Jesus' words to note. Do not be afraid. Why? Because He is God. He is sovereign. He is the Almighty One. He is in control. He is guiding history to His intended purpose. He tells us, It will get much worse before it gets better. So be warned and be aware you will see more wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said it will happen. Third, know that the media is becoming more powerful and having more influence on the church. We went to family camp this last weekend at Hume Lake. During the weekend, they interviewed many of the youngsters and they asked them um, a pretty interesting question. What did Santa bring you for Christmas? Um, I thought interesting. But about half the kids said they either received a TV or a TV and a DVD player. I thought, hmm, that is interesting to me. It makes me wonder what those youngsters are watching when they have that TV on in their room. Many of them, I'm sure, hooked up to cable, having their own DVD player with no parental supervision. What are they looking at? People, the media has a stranglehold on many in the church. It has us by the neck. It is like a python and it's squeezing biblical morality and godliness right out of us. And we got to say no. We got to chop off its head and just get it out. And some of you think, well, you know, Jack, I don't, I don't watch that much TV, or you know, I'm not, you know, I don't let the media influence me. Well, how many people know the ingredients of a Big Mac? And some of you are thinking, well, let's see, two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. I don't know how long. I think that I think that uh, commercial appeared 20 years ago, over 20 years ago. Because that's when I last had a TV, and that's when I remember it. How many of you know the slogan to American Express? Yeah. How many of you know the slogan to Nike? Just raise your hand. Just do it. You see, a lot of times we think, oh, well, it's not affecting us. I'm telling you, it is. It's affecting us. 
We need to beware and be warned that the media is after your mind, after the minds of your children, after your money, after your ethics, after your morality. Because most of the media, most of the media is run by wicked, God-hating men. Now, there is some good things in the media, but most of it is worldly. I mean, you know, go to a video store and rent something like Sergeant York, an old black and white. Anybody see that one? Oh, man, the guy, he preaches the gospel on that right out there. It's like, oh, yeah, get him. (laughs) There's a drunkard on there, and the guy just goes after him with the gospel. A major motion picture. You would never see that today. just never happens. People wouldn't have it. So we need to be aware that the media is is pushing in on us and having a great influence. I mean, the media is just controlling things. They control the news. They can put their own spin on things, whatever. Listen to what Proverbs 4.23 says. It says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart with all diligence. Now, how do you do that? Well, your heart receives information through the senses, through your seeing, through your hearing and touching and tasting. So about 85% of it is through seeing and then most of the rest of it through hearing and a little bit through taste and touch and smell. So if you are going to guard your heart and obey the command to guard your heart with all diligence, you must guard what you look at first and foremost and what you listen to. If you don't do that, you aren't guarding your heart. You're disobeying that command. So beware and be warned. The media is after your hearts, your money, your allegiance, and your children. They want to pull you along with Satan's agenda. Don't let the media do it. Four, biblical preaching is being rejected in most churches. You may not realize this. If you've gone to a church that has preached the Word of God, you may not know that most churches today do not preach the Word. Most of them do not. Most of them have abandoned biblical preaching altogether. They just give like a 10 to 20 minute is like this huge thing. Little self-help devotional. People don't need their Bibles. Why? Because they never read their Bible. They don't need their Bibles because they never go to the text. They never show people what the Word says. Seminaries are not teaching men how to preach anymore. They're teaching them how to be communicators, but not how to be exegetes of Scripture. They're teaching them about church growth, you know, demographic studies, how to meet the felt needs of those in your congregation, how to... Use psychology, how to use all sorts of worldly things in your church. Some seminaries only require two to four hours of Bible. I mean, think about that. When you graduate from seminary, you should be a Bible expert. You should be saturated in theology and doctrine and have a solid understanding of how to exegete a passage, create an outline from a passage and preach it and teach it. But most seminaries are not doing that. And then the pastors who go to those seminaries, they think they're equipped and they want to be expositors, maybe or maybe not. 
And they try to get into the Bible, but they've never been trained to do that because they haven't had any theology, doctrine, or exegesis. And then they're stumbling through and their churches are slowly shrinking. They look down the street and there's the church who's buying into every worldly gimmick and fad and trend. And that church is just exploding. I mean, the packing lot is just packed and they've got this new building and they got all these things happening. And here's the poor person who's trying to do what they think they should do. And all of a sudden they're thinking to myself, you know, maybe preaching is out. I had a guy, an elder of a church, a Bible church, tell me one time, you know, I think preaching has had its day. He says, you know, I've heard so many sermons and I just want to come to church and worship God through music. Listen, the highest form of worship is the preaching of the word of God. You can't be saved without the word of God. You can't be sanctified without the word of God. You can't know if the lyrics you're singing in a song are acceptable to God without the word of God. And churches all over the country are rejecting what they think is biblical exposition for these little tiny minute devotionals. And they cater those devotionals to the felt needs of unbelievers. They ask them what they want and they give them what they want. Well, we like music like this. Okay, we'll give you that. They actually go around to neighborhoods and ask unbelievers what those unbelievers think they should be doing in the church. And then the church then does what the unbelievers say they should be doing. Instead of going to the word of God and saying, well, God, what do you want us to do? They take a survey and give the unbelievers what they want. Which, of course, appeals to their flesh. But when a biblical exposition is set aside, there is no conviction of sin. There is no salvation. There is no holiness. And if there is no holiness in the church, Christ will make war against that church and he will take away its lampstand. Just read about it in letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. A church like that becomes an inoculation station helping unbelievers to tolerate false Christianity. They have been deceived into thinking they are experiencing Christianity, but they have only been exposed to a false and twisted form of it. Jesus said in Mark 3.14 that he appointed the twelve that he might send them out to preach. In Paul's last inspired letter, right after we that section we just read in chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy how to combat the wickedness of the end times, and he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience, gentleness, and instruction. That's what Paul said, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that's what God says. Preaching is and will always be the God-ordained way of spreading the truth outside the church and inside the church. That is what God says. Paul says, and God is well pleased to use the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So be warned and beware when you hear people say, you know, preaching has had its day. No. That does not come from the pages of scripture. That comes from the world forces of darkness. Five. 
Churches are allowing unbelievers to dictate what goes on in the church. We've already mentioned this. You can go to any Christian bookstore, pick up books that teach you how to survey unbelievers so those unbelievers can tell you what you're supposed to be doing in your church so you can have a user-friendly church, a user-driven church, rather than a God-friendly and a God-driven church. You cannot be men-centered and God-centered. You are either doing things for the approval of men or you're doing things for the approval of God. There is no middle ground. Right after Paul tells the leaders in the church to preach the word, he tells them why they must preach the word in the last days. And he says this in verse 3, For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will seek out teachers in accordance with their own desires, literally lusts, to lust or crave after that which is forbidden. And that's what we're seeing in the world today. Many evangelical churches are going to unbelievers, asking them what they would like to get. Oh, we want this kind of music. Okay, we'll give you worldly music. Okay, we want this kind of um, thing. And, well, we'll give you that. Or we want to be convicted. Okay, we won't preach on sin. And we want to feel good about our sin. Okay, we'll tell you you're okay and I'm okay. You want to read a good book? Read Peter Jones's new release called Pagans in the Pews. Peter Jones is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido. And he explains how the new spirituality has invaded the community and the church and the culture we live in. Paganism, Gnosticism, all sorts of things. And he just documents them. It's scary how it has crept into the White House and all sorts of areas. The church doesn't exist to please people. It exists to please and give glory to God. The church is not about us and what we want. It's about God and what He wants. We can't go to the children of Satan and ask them what they want and cater to their sin-cursed, spiritually dead wishes. That is like asking the enemy to organize and control your military. You just can't do it. We are all called to call sinners to repentance. That is the loving thing to do. You want to love somebody? You've got to command them like the scriptures tell you to do. God is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. For there is coming a day when he will judge the living and the dead through a man who is the appointed judge of the earth. That is the loving thing to do. Not you're okay and I'm okay and you can stay in sin and I'll stay in sin. And, you know, I mean, hey, let's not be critical. Let's not be judging. Unbelievers don't know what they need. They're spiritually dead. We need to go to God and find out what God says they need. We need to have God-centered churches, not man-centered churches. At last year's Shepherds Conference, Steve Lawson preached... A great message. You'll probably get it from the office. I think we have it floating around somewhere. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn there. I just want to survey 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul praises the Thessalonians because they had a God-centered church. And as I go through here, I'm going to go through here kind of quickly, I want you to notice the attributes and characteristics of a God-centered church. I think God is mentioned 14 times in these 10 verses. 
Verse 1 tells us the God-centered church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Unbelievers do not qualify as in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are enemies of God in Christ. They are haters of God and they are unable to please God. Just read it in Romans 8, 5 through 9. Verse 2 tells us the God-centered church produces prayers of thanksgiving to God. Unbelievers cannot offer up acceptable prayers of thanksgiving. Verse 3 tells us a God-centered church produces works of faith and labors of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that is done in a God-centered church is to be understood as being done in the presence of God the Father. A God-centered church is a church that constantly realizes God is watching. And they are out to please God because they are in His presence and He is watching everything they do. They do everything for the glory of God. Verse 4 says the God-centered church is beloved by God and chosen by God. That means the God-centered church is made up of people who have been predestined to salvation and who are saved. Verse 5 tells us the God-centered church is a church saved by the gospel. A gospel that must be modeled and a gospel that comes, notice what the text says, in power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. A God-honoring church preaches a gospel that brings full conviction. If there is no conviction of sin, the preaching is devoid of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit's primary ministry is to convict the world of sin and judgment. No conviction, no Holy Spirit. Verse 6 tells us the God-centered church imitates the apostles and the Lord. Paul says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. It also is a church that gladly receives the word of God. The text says they receive the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 tells us the God-centered church is an example to all the believers. This means it models holiness, piety, reverence, service, sacrifice, and zeal to God. Verse 8 tells us the God-centered church is one that proclaims the word of God and calls sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The text says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. He goes on to say, In every place your faith toward God has gone forth. They were preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance. They were gaining a reputation as a church that was sharing the gospel and pervading their area with the truth. It was going forth from them. Verse 9 says, The God-centered church is a church that has turned from sin, repented, and is serving God. Paul says, You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That is what true repentance is. It's not just saying you're sorry and then dabbling in the sin you say you're sorry for. It is to turn from that sin and to serve the living God. In verse 10, it tells us the God-centered church waits for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, the one who rescues us from the wrath to come. A church that is pleasing to God is always thinking about eternity, thinking about the future, thinking that Jesus could come back at any moment, today. 
And all those people that you could witness to now, if the rapture to occur, you could not witness to them any longer. That's why you redeem the time for the days are evil. That is the profile of a God-friendly church, a God-centered church. It does not cater. You cannot find anywhere in the text where ask unbelievers what they want. Beware and be warned of those who want to let the world into the church rather than let God dictate to the church what it must be doing. Six, the ecumenical movement is calling the church to tolerate what God hates. If you don't know what ecumenical is, kind of a big word... It is a word which describes a movement which is now alive and well and flourishing in many circles, which is trying to get all denominations together, set down all doctrines, set down all theology, do not judge, do not be critical, do not examine everything carefully, just accept everybody, everything they do and everything they believe so we can be one happy conglomeration of people who are loathsome to God. They leave the last part out. It is the cry of the age to tolerate evil and to reject what is good. According to many, we are supposed to accept false teachers, false doctrine, and sin. The latest trend is to invite wolves into the church to feed on the sheep. In December 16th, the Valley edition of the Los Angeles Times, section B, page 1, the article appeared entitled, Church welcomes an atheist as a teacher. The article reads, quote, Stuart Beckman Bassamo hasn't believed in God for years, yet here he is, spending most Sundays in the Simi Valley United Church of Christ teaching the parish's young people about religion. An atheist at Sunday school may seem like a wolf in sheep's clothing, may, <laughs> or the setup to a bad joke. But Beckman Bassamo is not here to persuade his teenage charges to abandon church. He is here to challenge them, to encourage tolerance, and perhaps church leaders hope to bolster the faith of others, end quote. That is hard to comment on. That is so wicked. That is so perverse and heretical and blasphemous, it is just hard to even comment on such falderall. Yet it is the spirit of our age to invite wolves in, children of Satan, emissaries of Satan, doing the deeds of Satan to feed on the sheep that God purchased with his own blood. I am telling you, the leaders of those churches will pay dearly. There is a ministry called the Voice of the Martyrs Ministry. Its purpose is to inform churches around the world of those brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted. They have publications. They have a website. And you may not realize this, but more people have died for Christ in the last hundred years than in the last 19 centuries combined. 100 years, more people have died for their faith than in all 1900 centuries combined. And almost all of them at the hands of Muslims. In an article entitled, We Have, Shame, have We Shamed the Faiths of Jesus, Muslims in Our Pulpits, Tom White writes, 
quote, across America, pastors and Christian leaders are allowing representatives of the Islamic faith to freely speak in their pulpits. This happened at Willow Creek Community Church, the largest church in America, where a Muslim named Fasail Hamuda was allowed to share the pulpit. During the interview with Pastor Bill Hybels, Hamuda claimed, as a matter of fact, we, all of us, believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe in Mohammed and all the prophets. So our mission here is to introduce people to God. He also stated, we believe in Jesus more than you do, in fact, end quote. And the article goes on. The fact is that the religion of Islam is demonic. It is satanic. It is hostile to God. They reject Jesus as the Messiah. They reject the resurrection. They reject that he is the Son of God, that he is divinity. They reject his sovereignty. They reject his lordship. They deny the New Testament. They deny the Bible as the only authoritative source of revelation from God. They are of Satan. And you would let them come in and address the people of God and spread error and deceit? What is that? In supposedly one of the most evangelical churches in America, the largest church in America. Beware and be warned, ecumenicalism is on the rise and anyone who does not buy into the ecumenical agenda, those people receive some sort of persecution. I think almost every church in the valley is mad at me (laughs) because I won't participate in their ecumenical gatherings. They're sick. I went to one of them. I almost got up and left as this woman rabbi told a joke about a guy who preached a sermon for an hour and how it emptied the church, the synagogue. And they all laughed and thought it was great. And when it came my time to share, I said, I preach every Sunday for an hour and a half for 10 years and always will. And they all got quiet. (laughs) Most churches, number seven, have stopped preaching the gospel and their pews are filled with unbelievers. You know, we take things for granted. You go to a church and it preaches the word and it teaches the Bible and they share the gospel. And you you come to think that, well, but, you know, I, I... Isn't everybody doing that? No. Most people are not. Most churches you find, just open up the phone book and just go to a church. You could be there for a week, for a month, for a year, and never hear the gospel clearly presented one time. You can hear elements of the gospel. You know, you hear about the love of God. You hear about the mercy of God. You know, you hear about the grace of God. And there may be some mild exhortations. You know, we need to serve God. That's all. You never hear people called to repentance and faith in Christ. You don't hear people exhorted to repent and believe and humble themselves and follow after Jesus. You never hear about the blood of Christ, that Jesus died for their sins, that He is the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. That there is only one way, that the gate is narrow. And only by receiving what Jesus Christ did for you Because you can't do it. Only by understanding that His blood was shed for you and receiving that free gift that you can be saved. You never hear it. You hear elements of the gospel, never how to be saved. So those churches are very religious, 
but it is the blind leading the blind. And it's amazing to me that the church would forget and set aside the one thing it exists on earth to do, which is preach the gospel. You know, we can do everything better for God in heaven. There is only one thing we can't do now, and that is in heaven that we can do now, and that is preach the gospel. And yet the world has just loaded all sorts of jargon onto the gospel. I mean, you go into the Bible, just read the Gospels, read Acts, and find out how people came to the Lord. It, you won't find one place where it says, ask Jesus in your heart. Nowhere. Nowhere. Pray a prayer. Raise your hand, sign a card. The common exhortation is, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins. And receive what Christ did for you. I like how Isaiah put it. He put it this way in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Listen to what he says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him when he is near. When is that? Right now. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon Notice, you must forsake your wicked way. You must forsake your unrighteous thoughts. You must turn from them and turn to the Lord, and then God will abundantly pardon you, but not until then. No repentance, no salvation. And the church has coddled people in their rebellion. Salvation is not merely a call to believe facts. Demons believe the facts. They know Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. They know he was born of a virgin. They know he's the Son of God. They know it better than we do. But it's not merely understanding the facts. It is understanding the facts and a trust in the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for us that saves us. That he shed his blood for us on the cross and that it is only by his grace and his work and His mercy that we are saved, not by our own deeds. And once we are committed to that, it is a call to holy living, to righteousness, to be zealous for good works. Grace is not permission to sin. Grace is not license to rebel against God with impunity. Paul, several times in Romans, addresses that very issue. Shall we sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Ever. So many churches are teaching now that grace is nothing more than, you know, oh yeah, well, you know, you got grad. I know you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, and so don't, don't get bothered about it. Get bothered. Sin is bad. Sin is offensive to God. The Bible said is why the wrath of God comes. Be bothered by your sin. True saving grace is not licensed to sin. It is licensed to obey. True saving grace is to be freed from sin, to walk in newness of life. Read about it in Romans 6. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. Verse 11, and here we see what grace is really. Grace has been so overused and redefined that 
Most people don't even understand what grace is all about. They understand that it's undeserved, but they don't understand what it's supposed to produce in people's lives. They just think, well, grace is just cool because you can just keep living in rebellion against God and you got grace. See what it says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Here's the first thing that grace has done. Grace has come to bring salvation to all men. That's what grace does. It offers the gospel. Secondly, the grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny ungodliness. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to deny worldly desires. The grace of God has appeared, instructing us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God has appeared, causing us to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and, God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And because Paul knew that this right here is the core of what Satan is trying to attack in the church today, this paragraph right here is the target at which Satan aims. He says, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is Christianity right here. Grace leading to salvation, leading to holiness in lifestyle. That's what gives glory to God. Now, there, I purged. <laughs> so you ask yourself this. So, so what do I do? I mean, now a lot of you are going, whoa, I didn't know some of these things. These are kind of scary. Let me give you seven things you need to do. First, as this new year begins, beware and be warned of these things. Know they are coming. And so be discerning. Be like the sons of Issachar who knew the times and knew what to do. Be biblically critical. Examine everything carefully. Keep looking. Keep watching. Keep praying. Secondly, keep your hearts and minds saturated with the Word of God. The one cure for ignorance, the one cure for lack of understanding and lack of discernment is to know the truth. Read Proverbs 2, and it will tell you how you discern the knowledge of God. God will give you understanding and discernment to navigate in this life through its wickedness as you are constantly nourished up in the words of the faith and sound doctrine. Third, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you are presently seeing God change in your life, if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you love God and want to obey God and love His Word and love His truth, then know that you are most likely a child of God and nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Read it in the end of Romans chapter 8. For if you have professed to know Jesus, but you don't love him, if you profess to know Jesus and you don't long to obey him, you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, you don't want to serve him, you don't want to sacrifice him, and you don't want to suffer for him, 
then you probably aren't a believer. And you need to take the exhortation of first or second Corinthians thirteen five to heart. You need to examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith. And if you look at your heart and you look at your life and you realize you're just pretending, today is the day of salvation. You are a sinner and Christ is the Savior. He died for your sin on the cross. And if you repent and receive Him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. But don't just acknowledge that it's true that He did that. You must repent. Turn from your wicked way and your wicked thoughts and follow after Him. Or you cannot be His disciple. Five, get a heavenly perspective. Live for God, not the world. Leave here today with the resolve that you are going to do what God wants you to do. You are going to live in light of eternity. You are going to keep keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You are going to keep your sight fixed on the things above, not on the things below. Remember what James said in James 4.4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Six, be diligent to share your faith. The only cure for lost people, the only cure for our world, the only cure for people who are perishing is the gospel, for it is the power of God for all who believe. And if you love people, if you really love people, you better love them enough to share your faith with them. You better love them enough to be rejected for the truth. You better love them enough to suffer persecution because of the truth of God's word. If you love them, you will share the truth with them and call them to repentance. This is the loving thing to do. If someone is going to perish in hell for eternity, make sure you do your part to give them no excuse. If they're going to go there, make sure they go there with full knowledge and full rebellion, understanding the truth and having rejected with a clear conscience. Love God enough to suffer for righteousness' sake. Seven, finally remember that as a believer, we are not of this world. This world is not our home. This world will be burned up in all of its works, including your house and your car and all your clothes. This world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God is the one who abides forever. Know that if you have repented of your sins and turned to follow Christ, you are on the winning side. Whatever this world may bring you, whatever it may deal to you, no matter how painful it is, remember this. As a believer, you will suffer all the wickedness and pain and trial you will ever suffer for all eternity in this life only. Remember that the wicked, no matter how much they flourish like a green tree in its native soil, they receive all the pleasure they will ever receive in this life only. Live for eternity. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for... Your word, which gives us discernment. 
We thank you for godly men and women who have spotted error and made it known to the church. We thank you that we are yours and that the scriptures say that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. And Father, help us to resolve as we leave here today to live for you in a sin-cursed world. Help us to beware and be warned of the many things that we have talked about. And help us to stand up for you as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And may we fight until the end, for we know that life and death for eternity are on the line. We pray this in your name. Amen.